Josh, I have a question. I wanted you to discuss the regulative principles and their role in our spiritual practice and spiritual life. Hmm. And, well, the reason I'm asking, there's many of us that are involved in this group who have left Krishna consciousness, chosen to break the regulative principles, still do, still don't, you know, all different degrees. And so it comes up. What Prabhupada called the regulative principles, which is uh, perhaps unique to him, in one sense, at least the term, the regulative principles, is uh, it has its uh, origin in the Bhagavatam concept in relation to Kali Yuga. There in the first canto, Maharaj Parikshit has uh, an encounter with Kali not Kali, Kali, <laughs> the personification of the uh, of the yoga, who is uh, after the departure of Krishna, whose time is is coming. He's kind of the uh, conglomerate of bad karma personified. He met the Kali, and Kali was, uh, as the story goes, was dressed like a king. So it it means that um, very simplistically that. At this time, less than qualified persons will misrepresent themselves as leaders. That's a kind of a symptom of the age, because he wasn't qualified, but he was dressed as a king. And the actual king, Emperor Marsh Pariksit, came upon him in this uh, royal attire and recognized him for who he was and chastised him. And he wanted to uh, banish him from his kingdom such that that which he was about would not have an opportunity to proliferate under the Maharaja's uh, reign in his regime. So what happened was that Kali himself surrendered to Maharaj Parikshit. He became a Sharnagata a surrendered soul to the king. But uh, he still has his nature, so what could he do? So he made a petition to the Maharaj that, okay, I surrender to you. Naturally, then he, Maharaj Pariksit had to accept him. If a Sharanagata comes from any background or any condition, then we have to accept that person. So he did, with all of his faults. He accepted him. But uh, after that, then the uh, Kali made clear that you know, my nature is what it is, and I appreciate your shelter, but you, uh, you've got to give me some, some room to breathe, to be. Because Pritchett Marsh told him that uh, wherever there is... Um, the accumulation. Yeah, he said wherever there, can, wherever there are these activities of intoxication, untruth, that means like gambling, that's the fifth one, but um, himsa, or non-himsa, himsa, <laughs> violence, uh, lack of uh, uh, mercy. We extend mercy to those who are beneath us, so if those who are beneath us are abused, then that's um, not good. And then... Um, Illicit sexual connection. 
And so the King uh, Kali said that, he said, this is more or less what I'm about. And the King said, you can stay in my kingdom wherever these four things are taking place. And so he gave him some space, but he didn't because there weren't any of those things going on in his kingdom. <laughs> so Kali said, well, you know, you've given me space, but you haven't given me space. So what to do? So he said, all right, I'll give you a fifth thing. Wherever there is the hoarding of, of gold, of money, then you can stay there. An implication being that wherever there's the hoarding of money, then it will give rise to these things. This is a capitalistic society, and there's a fair amount of money hoarding <laughs> that goes on. And these <laughs> things are quite rampant, the other four as well. So that's the basis, the scriptural basis for these things. And while well, Prabhupada emphasized the four, it's good to emphasize the fifth also. Because we all have some gold or some money, and that's our, our livelihood. And when we part with it enough to feel the pinch, as I said before, then um, it makes an impression upon us. And uh, wherever our money goes, we tend to go there too. So if we, if we make a sacrifice for that, for example, for the service of the Vaishnavas and, and so on, and build a temple or whatever it may be to, to, to publish a book then it's likely that we'll read that book or go to that temple and and so see this will be very helpful and most of us are in the world and earning money for our livelihood and support of our families and so forth and so to make our worldly life to bring it in connection with spirituality this is a very prominent uh, way to do that and, and this is not just uh, you know, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, this is quite common in religious traditions. It, it gets abused, of course, I suppose. But um, again, wherever our money goes, and we go there too, to one extent or another. So uh, we shouldn't forget that one. That would be helpful for us. And it might be wise, given the circumstances that are the background to your question, as you described put some emphasis on that one rather than on the other four or two of the four or something like that that are more popular. You're saying uh, that it might be another way to... I have one question before I say that. Kali, then, is influencing through those activities? Like, what is the... Mm-hmm. When someone yeah. participates well, in the point activities? is... Well, no, the point is that, that there has to be the yoga, as I mentioned last night briefly, arises out of a moral and ethical foundation. So there's a lot of propaganda, for example, in society today about yoga and its benefits for health and, and so on. But the actual yoga system is based on a particular world view. Yama niyama means, it means uh, do's and don'ts, really. So there's some ethical, moral foundation out of which the yogic experience arises. And so the yoga teacher has to establish a yoga foundation. Actually, the scriptures have established such a foundation in a general sense. And of course, it has to be uh, edited or adjusted or applied given the circumstances. But this is the very the, the kind of the principle behind the regulative principles, that there should be a moral and ethical basis of our life out of which the yogic experience through successive stages of practice will arise. And if that's not there at the foundation, then you won't get the full experience. So, 
ethical, moral. So some of these things perhaps are easier for us in our modern society today and with all of our faults to um, shortcomings and just uh, you know new ways of thinking about things that perhaps we didn't think about and we made certain commitments to follow those principles are all impacting our capacity to follow them, our interest in following them, the relevance of them in our minds and so forth. Let's go through them and, and try to understand them in a, in a broader context. So we talked about gold hoarding, hoarding the money, that's, that's pretty clear. It means that um, we all have to have some livelihood and that will be different for different people. Some people have a particular disposition that allows them to live more simply. And other people are higher rollers. And the simple people's standards should not be artificially imposed upon high rollers. <laughs> uh, so according to their nature and their capacity, uh, everyone should give and enough to feel the pinch. If we don't feel a pinch, then we're not giving. What did that Mother Teresa said? Uh, maybe I cited it one other time. A fellow asked if he could give something, and she said, yes, but not from your surplus. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's not a giving, something like that. So then again, surplus will be different for different people according to their, their natures. And but anyway, the principle is that we should feel and we're making some sacrifice here. The story of uh, that uh, Govinda Bogue is a famous story that Prabhupada used to tell. Was it Gopal? Was it? Is I guess a kind of a cartoon character of sorts from the uh, Indian uh, history and folklore and whatnot. And he had a field. He was a wealthy agriculturalist, and so one of his workers complained to him one day that you know you you have so much money uh, from your vast agricultural undertakings, but you never give anything to God. You probably know the story. He had taken some, he took some uh, flowers from the grains in his hand, and he held them before Gop, uh, this uh, fellow. And he said, uh, "The wind came and blew the grains." And he said, "Govinda Namaha." I'm offering it to Govinda. And he said, "You see, this happens all the time. Wind is blowing, some grains are going, and I'm offering those grains always. So many of them." In other words, they're already gone. God's actually already taken them. <laughs> He's the force of the wind. And then I'm, well, okay, you can eat. Namaha. <laughs> I offer to you. <laughs> so not like that. This is the principle. But again, it will be different for different persons. And the sannyasis are not to impose their standards in a general sense, for example, on householders. I'm living like this. You should be also. No, they're householders, so they have different different necessities, requirements, different disposition, and so on. There was one associate of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu householder who used to, who used to give, just give away his money. Mahaprabhu appointed another devotee to watch over him. Don't let him give away his money. <laughs> he can't have a family life like that. So that's the one. And then the second one, uh, gambling. Gambling is uh, in this country was um, is still illegal to some extent, and there are places where it's legal. The classic place is Las Vegas. Have you ever been there? It's interesting because you drive for miles and miles and miles through the desert. There's just nothing from all directions, and then there's just one 
place out there is like Sin City. You can do it out here where no one is around and you have to drive many miles through the desert to, to get there. So um, the basic principle behind, uh, as I think of it, gambling is not earning an honest wage. The tendency to want to make, uh, make money without having to do anything or at the cost of others, or, or something like that. When we, when we, according to our nature and tendency, when we work in an honest job, whatever it may be, there's some fulfillment in that, in, in a very basic sense. There's some integrity to that. I mean, uh, I did a good day's work, and the work was also something that was contributed meaningfully to the society. In times gone by, of course, in the so-called Vedic times, then business was involved with essentials. It was an agrarian-based culture, and so business would involve the trade of commodities that were essential for human society. Grains and cloth and minerals and so on and so forth. And of course... um, we live in, an, as I said, in a, in a Vaishya society, a capitalist society. That's the whole premise behind it. In one sense, is is greed, to foster greed. So it, uh, as good as it is, comparatively to many other societies, and uh, it, it has its it has its problems, and, and they're popping up all the time. Corporate greed recently is a huge issue in America, example of of corruption and, and exploitation. So all this is included in the expanded idea of, of gambling, in a sense. But the actual act of gambling itself is, is kind of, I guess, the, what we call it, the, the classic example of, of trying to make a living without honest effort. Of course, Krishna says of, of cheats, I am, uh, I am a gambler, right? I am gambling. So, it doesn't mean we shouldn't take any risk. Nothing risked, nothing gained. So, the spiritual aspirant is a bit of a risk taker in a general sense because really we are kind of thrusting ourselves into the invisible. It sounds good and uh, we're attracted, but if we jump, will there be anything there to land on? We don't know, but we, we go forward and we find, oh, there is, there's, there's firm ground here. And then the, uh, the bar is drawn again, and again, we have to jump higher and, and further. And it's always like that. Spiritual progress will always be like that, for the most part, to us. That means, what I mean to say, it will always be um, colored by some degree of uncertainty. But we take courage from the example of great persons who, have, who speak so strongly about the futility of material acquisition, which offers an appearance of stability and security. They speak so strongly about how, in reality, material acquisition is the acquiring of things that are maybe here today but will certainly be gone tomorrow. They speak strongly about that, and the fact that they can speak so strongly about that it indicates to us, as I say, that they have firm ground that they're standing on to be able to turn their back to such. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take any risk. 
we should take a risk. It will appear like this, spiritual life, that, oh, that uh, I have to risk everything and what will I gain? Everything will be lost. I'll be living in some theory. I lose my friends. I lose my, I could lose my job. I could lose so many things. But as we proceed, Sridhar gave a nice explanation. He said, it will appear at first all risk, no gain. Then we'll start to think, anyway, nothing risk, nothing gain, because what I have God is really is nothing or next to nothing, so I might as well risk it. And in the end, it will turn to the realization that nothing risked and all gained was really what it was about. It will look like all risk, no gain, and then it will look like nothing risked. So if I don't risk it, I won't gain anything anyway, so I might as well do it. And in the end, as I say, it will be, it will appear as it really is. It was nothing risked and all gained. Whatever we have, <laughs> do we have it? <laughs> Can we keep it? No. So, we shouldn't avoid that risk. That's actually a sure thing. It's really not, not gambling. So, anyway, in general, we should earn an honest wage. That will make us an honest person and uh, give us some personal in- integrity. Like I said last night, citing Prabhupada, but trying to develop that idea a little bit, that this um, devotional life is for human beings. So spiritual life is for human beings. So we have to sometimes think about everything that it means to be human and realize, uh, in the best sense of the term, what human life affords us the opportunity to be is a spiritual aspirant, but to be a good, decent human being is also included in that. And we see so much disparity in this regard amongst devotees who are espousing devotional theology and philosophy and whatnot, but they are, they're less than human in their dealings even with one another. But to speak of the greater circle of of humanity. They're not caring people sometimes. So this is not what Prabhupada was, was talking about. So this is part of it to earn an honest uh, wage. And obviously, well, we're not just dealing with essentials. I'm not saying you should only, you know, trade uh, fruits and vegetables. <laughs> there are many ways to make, make a living and many of them may be unnecessary in one sense, superficial, but there are ways to go about them. They're part of the society, the economy that we live in, and there are ways to go about them that are ethical. I remember I once bought a car, a Volkswagen, years ago, and the uh, fellow who sold it to me at the, uh, at the car dealers was the best salesman in the company. And, you know, car salesmen don't, haven't, this was, you know, years ago, they haven't had the best reputation in the 50s, you know, to be a car salesman, especially a used car salesman. It was not, uh, it was not very glorified, uh, nice job to have or a nice, nice person to be. So uh, this fellow, at any rate, was the best salesman in the company, and it was a surprise to everybody because he had a very, uh, he was very ethical and, and moral, and, uh, and he was told that you'll never sell a car with your standards of how to treat people and deal with people. And it, it turned out that he was, the, he was the most successful salesman in the, in the company. Now, maybe he was just giving me a line. I don't know. <laughs> no. No. 
Yeah, but no, but he was. I mean, the way he was, yeah, in my, at least in my estimation, the way he was dealing with me was... Uh, well, did you uh, buy the car? I bought the car. <laughs> he was successful. So, um, anyway, there, there are ways to be involved in whatever enterprise we may be involved in and, and be ethical about that. And there are ways to be involved in it to be uh, that are unethical. And we have an opportunity probably throughout the course of the year to go one way or the other. So, better to be ethical about that and earn an honest wage and deal with people for what they are according to the worldview that a devotee is living in, the lens through which he or she is supposed to be looking at life. So, gambling. And then, um, to be kind to others. We talked about this last night, Jivadaya. Generally showing mercy to others means that you, you're in a superior position of, of some, in some respects so that you can reach down to them and help them. So often it's been played out in relation to animals and domestic animals in particular who come under the, under the care of human society and haven't got much of a life otherwise not a lot of wild cows and chickens and things like that. So uh, these domestic animals under the care of humans, well, they should be cared for. And they produce uh, the cow, for example, abundantly when cared for, uh, a commodity that's very, very useful to human society. But it shouldn't be limited to that example. That one has been magnified, and for good reasons. But the broader idea of it is to be kind to to other living beings, to show mercy to the innocent. So that's not hard to to relate to. Gambling, not too hard to relate to. Yes? In relationship to cows, I know Prabhupada said at one time that the ideal life would be for everyone to have an acre of land, a cow, and mm. garden grow their food. But in order to have a cow that produces milk, don't you have to have a calf born every year? So Not every year. About every three years, maybe. About every three years. Well. Well, you. You have to understand that Prabhupada, when he would speak like that, he was advocating an agrarian-based society. He was very much uh, Gandhian you know, in his, in his outlook about how to live in the world. And Gandhi, of course, was not so much of an independent thinker, but he drew his whole, a lot of his, his thinking from basic spiritual concepts or, or religious thinking. So Prabhupada was, in that sense, he was very much kind of an environmentalist, and he was advocating... <laughs> an agrarian-based society in an industrial-based society that's really will be very difficult to turn back the industrial society to an agrarian-based society. But Prabhupada was interested in that. And now this is an interesting point because in the meantime, in the last 30 years or so, people in the Western world, have also Western society, have also become concerned about the downside of an industrial-based society society and they have 
gone into great depth to investigate the shortcomings of that and and come up with ideas and concepts of how to alter that, how to adjust that in such a way that the downside of an industrial society will be diminished considerably. So many excellent books have been written, and people who are immersed in this kind of thinking are, in one sense, applying themselves in a dynamic way in comparison to the average devotee who goes to the store to buy something and reads the label. Are there any eggs in here? Is there any fish in here? You know, okay, I won't, uh, I'll buy it. That whole idea of reading the label, what is that about? Why are we reading the label? Because you don't want to be part of the uh, implicated in animal slaughter or the abuse of the chickens or, or whatever, or, or eat something that you that you you consider not appropriate for human consumption. But the greater idea involved there is that you don't want to be involved in things that are a part of exploiting looking at the world from the wrong angle of vision that promotes exploitation in any way, shape, or form. That's the whole principle behind it. And while just to take something from that and place it here looks like a little fanatical or something, oh God, you know, you've got to read every label, what's going to... But the principle is important to consider, and it would be, it would be in the interest of some devotees to read some books about people who have really spent a lot of time thinking about how the industrial society is exploiting people and natural resources and so forth, and how by changing your life and thinking of the world differently, we can all live in a human society, a much better life, a life that would be much more conducive to uh, spiritual culture and so forth, much more sattvic. So there's a lot of sattvic type of thinking that a lot of the devotees aren't like up to date with. And Prabhupada would not appear to be up to date with it either, and he, and he wasn't, but he was up to date in his time, from his perspective, in India and so forth. I mean, Prabhupada wasn't up to date in terms of everything that goes on with fossil fuels, and, and, uh, and it's a huge issue. I mean, you really have to become an expert in the field. He was an expert in his own field, but try to understand what he was advocating. And there are a lot of spiritual traditions outside of the, the Gaudi tradition that identify more with these types of issues and seek to be part of that uh, change or, or world view, while at the same time their theology, their ideology doesn't go as, as high, in a sense, as Gaudiya Vaishnavism. It, it's not as developed theologically. If it ends, for example, in Brahman, well, you know, that's, that's, that's a huge step from where we are. But the Gaudiyas, they, they make little of that what must be their vantage point. But to make little of that is truly is only appropriate for one who has standing in, in a plane that's much higher than that. To be connected with a tradition that leads to that plane gives you some room to talk about it, but you should talk a little humbly about it, that our tradition is better than yours. Or <laughs> if you're standing on the firm ground that makes Brahman realization look like a small thing, then that's another thing. But even those devotees 
the standard is what? Trinata Pisunichina, they're very humble. They may speak loudly sometimes. Prabhupada was a bit like that, but under scrutiny he, he would be revealed. He was very humble. So um, I'm trying to expand the idea of a moral and ethical basis for our life. And if we're going to read the label, then we should, there's a lot of labels. There's like, for example, in our ashram, we don't drink any milk that doesn't come from cows that have been properly taken care of, that have no, um, haven't been injected with hormones, and, and, and for that matter, for the most part, we only take organic milk from cows that are grazed on grasses that are organic, and so we think all these things have value. And, um, and to be progressive, as we would, I hope, like to be in our spiritual life, we have to be progressive materially in a way that corresponds with our spiritual outlook. And therefore, we should be up to date on, on these things to, to some extent. It's, and I expect, at least my younger students, who I mean, when I grew up as a kid, I saw the first no littering signs, you know, $50. So you can imagine what it was like. People used to just throw things out the window. It was just very common <laughs> in the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> well, I find that shocking, but... But there was no there was no sense about it, it's, and then the signs started going up. No littering, you know, fifty dollar fine or something. Like that. <coughs> now it's probably a five hundred or thousand dollar fine, but it's quite a difference from the way like young people are brought up today with a sense about recycling and all these things. So I like to hear from them all these things. I haven't got time to go and study all the books about uh, these things, but I'm a little up to date. And I get help from those who are already schooled in, in such things to a larger extent than I was. It was important for us to be progressive materially while we are advancing spiritually if we want to represent a tradition with, in a living way and, and, and make it relevant. So in a broader sense, that's what these regulative principles are about, a whole ethical kind of basis for our spiritual life that leads away from exploitation. So we come from hoarding of money to gambling to showing mercy to others. So simply we say, no meat eating. But as I say, it's broader than that. Then we come to intoxication. So intoxication, obviously, if we just use the take the word it's not in our interest to be intoxicated. That's pretty clear. To be intoxicated means that you have a, a uh, you're deluded as to uh, who you are and what your strengths are and what your abilities are, and so forth. So that's not in our interest. At the same time, you know, you have things like um, there's a big case in California. I think it's reached a conclusion. I went on for some time. A fellow who was in uh, our area in Northern California and supplying marijuana for medical use to certain people and, and it's illegal in California state law but the federal law contradicts it and they came and arrested him. It was a huge case. And he was actually doing a good thing for, for people. But I also see that, that being abused sometimes. They allow that in Oregon. In fact, uh, we own a house in Oregon that, that um, we move from we we're selling it, but we rent it. And one of the guys that rents it there is uh, he grows marijuana in, in the place because uh, he has a license from the 
from the state to grow medical marijuana. He's got some kind of a problem. <laughs> We're trying to sell the house, and people come in and look at it, and there's these big plants. <laughs> I think they walked into you know some place that's about to be raided or something. He has to show his license. Police come out every now and then to check the height. They can only be so high. So um, I'm just kind of broadening this because I know that that's probably one of the things that that some devotees are prone to or were prone to before joining and perhaps return to in times of distress. So I'm not advocating that it's um, good, but you know I come from that culture too. So I think uh, there's some. There, Medical application of a, of a drug is, is, is one thing, and intoxication is another. So you decide whether you're using something in such a way that it was, has some medicinal effect or whether you're abusing it. I'd say, you know, probably 90% of the time it's, you know, there's a tendency towards abuse, but Prabhupada, of course, was, was strict on that, and people were, you know, very much abusing drugs in those days, but being the broad-minded person that I am and living as we do in the society, I haven't thought about this before, just now I'm thinking about it as you bring it up. I know that uh, there were many Catholic saints that used to drink a little wine at dinner for for digestion in in Italy. (laughs) The principle, anyway, is is clear, I think, uh, that... uh, Become intoxicated is not is not in our interest, and we will not um, we'll be deluded, and we are already deluded. That's the basic problem. We're deluded, so to further delude ourselves about our strengths and abilities and capacities and so forth, and that won't be in our interest. And intoxication doesn't um, ultimately it doesn't calm the mind. There are sadhus in India, so-called sadhus that they. In fact, there was a book that came out years ago called Sadhus. You may have seen it. It was largely a picture book. And the, the front, there was a sadhu smoking a hookah. It was the, got the front cover. I've met them before. There's a fellow in, in Vrindavan, on the parikram of Vrindavan, who, who wanted to build a temple, I think, bigger than the Krishna Balaram temple. And he has long dreadlocks. And, and he, uh, so what he did is he stood on one leg and he made about a stand on one leg till he had a temple big enough or bigger. Um, so he uh, has a big tree there, and he stands on the tree, and he has a swing that he kind of leans on. It's a little bit of his little little cheating, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Since the days of Hiranyakasi Poo, you know, they've liberalized <laughs> the tradition a little bit. Anyway, he's there, swinging and, you know, standing on one foot. He uses the swing when he sleeps, you know, to lean on. But he's, he's quite austere, in a sense. But he smokes pot all the time. And that, you know, that makes him a little dull and numb to, you know, to the um, austerity that he's performing. And it's fairly common. These fellows will do that in Himalayas, and so when it's cold and all, they, they get it numb, numb themselves out. And they can focus their mind also for some time with the help of that. So he has a temple now. They built a temple, and and he has a succession of people who stand on one leg. It's a, it's you can see them How there. How long did he stand on the leg? For? I was there for quite a while. Uh, like he's years. Yeah, yeah. Well, he must have had somebody come and fill his pipe back up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. He eats. Yeah, he eats. 
Well, I went there out of curiosity once to just check him out, and he, he offered me, a, you know, a toke, you know. <laughs> I said, uh, I don't take it anymore. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Um, there are cultures that use peyote and mushrooms right. and things to, for spiritual journeys. Is it possible <coughs> some people may not feel like it's a medical reason, but it could be... I mean, I, I have talked to people who use different kinds of hallucinogens as part of their spiritual path. Mm -hmm. You know, like like a vision quest kind of thing. You know, people do that in the Southwest a lot. Yeah. The term spiritualities can, you know, be used painted with a broad brush and I subscribe to a very a, a much more um, narrow definition of spirituality the basis of which is is the idea that you're all familiar with theoretically that there's a difference between the body and the soul and that's the kind of the, where we, we cross over from material to spiritual to the extent that we actually experience that and there's a lot of a psychic type of experience and and the mind is very, very supple compared to the body, and what possibilities lie in the mental realm are extraordinary and overwhelming in comparison to the material realm, and they're very different. You know, just like, for example, in this room, if we were to take every, think, think of taking everything in the room with us physically when we left, we wouldn't be able to do that, but mentally we could take everything. So the mental plane is far more expansive. So the possibilities that lie in the mental realm are so great in comparison to the physical realm that they seem to be categorically different. But actually they're not categorically different because the only thing that you can experience in the mental realm is something from the physical realm because the mental realm is filled with impressions via the senses from the physical realm. But they can be combined in ways that they aren't combined in the physical plane. So because of that, often mental and psychic experiences are identified with spirituality. So I don't know about those Indians uh, that, that take peyote and so forth, and, and uh, those uh, los hongos, the mushrooms. Uh, there's a place in Pueblo in Mexico where they come from. I went, I lived down in that area for a while, so I'm a little familiar with them, but um, that group. But I think that. They're involved in a, in a psychic kind of spirituality more than the kind of spirituality as defined by Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And I think those things may be helpful to them in some respect on a human level. I'm not sure, but I, it makes them perhaps uh, better people uh, in the way they deal with one another. Or, I don't know. I was from, you know, the 60s times and so forth, and, and in some ways... The counterculture and its uh, the additives of those times did make people think more broadly and more more human-like. The problem, of course, is is while they thought more broadly and more human-like in some respects, they were also it led to be kind of unrealistic, and it led to conspiracy theories and uh, a kind of self-centeredness also that was uh, very inappropriate. And I live in Mendocino County in California, which is like a liberal bastion. It's like when we were kids, when we were younger, I was living in San Francisco in like 1969. And, you know, that's where we wanted to go, get some land in Mendocino, you know, like leave the world. So there's people up there that did that and they're still there. And, uh, 
radio stations are like extremely liberal to the point that it just you know irritate you. It's like God, they're fanatics, you know. And so many conspiracy theories and everything the government is doing is suspect, and it's a bit extreme sometimes. And so uh, it lent to that kind of thing too, to extremes. But it it had some good sides. I mean, I remember in the Shringer Marsh, somebody asked him, uh, my godbrother asked him that, you know, I took uh, LSD, and uh, he said, uh, Prabhupada said it was no good, but I found it was helpful to some extent, some way. And uh, the Shringer Marsh said, well, I took LSD, and, uh, and when I saw somebody cooking a piece of meat, I could never eat it again. He said, so help me. That's what he said. But, you know, go on from there. And so we've been given something much more significant as a means for changing our lives than such things. But I don't deny the fact that they may on some level be helpful to some people in ways that even might um, be construed with broad brush as, as being in the spiritual direction. I guess it depends what you're taking, but intoxication in, in and of itself tends to be Thomasic by nature. But it's interesting to note that the Tamaguna and the Sattvaguna have many similarities. To give a classic example, Prabhupada gave the example of a sadhu living in the jungle and a monkey living in the jungle. They both go naked, they both eat only fruits, live very simply, but the monkey's got a lot of other things going on that the sadhu hopefully doesn't. So, you know, the two ends of the spectrum have similarities. If you look at the, uh, you know, an avadut, the, the mad, mad saint, externally you cannot, dis- it may be difficult to distinguish that person from a bag lady. I mean, they're mad. They're mad. If you met someone like Bamsi Das Babaji, he's mad. And disheveled in his appearance and, and so forth. So there are some similarities. But overall, there's a difference and there's a downside. So intoxication. And then with regard to sex life, I think that it is, uh, and I've said this before, universally accepted that this principle has to be restricted. There's nobody that denies this. It's just a question of where they draw the line. I mean, that's why we wear clothes in one sense, where we're drawing the line. And there are nudist colonies and people who subscribe to nudist philosophy that don't believe in that. And they get together in their places and they hang out unclothed. That's a whole philosophy. But um, anywhere in society, universally this principle is accepted. That somewhere we have to draw the line and make a difference. And in the animal society, there may be a system built into nature for... Uh, but there's no, there's not as much uh, conscientious discrimination for for animals to have sexual intercourse with their offspring. It's not a thing. But but in human society, for the most part, that will be um, many people. Uh, the vast majority of people will draw the line there. Some people don't draw the line there. That's uh, also uh, in fact becoming more common. But that person will also draw the line somewhere. So. My point is that universally it's accepted that this principle should be, uh, this tendency should be regulated. So the question is where to regulate it and how to regulate it in such a way that it will promote my spiritual growth and development. And Prabhupada drew the line in a particular place. 
and what we found is that for the most part, his disciples couldn't uh, toe that line. Therefore, I um, say that with regard to sex, that it should be part of uh, of a meaningful and committed relationship that uh, involves more than just the physical experience. And so that's kind of drawing it a little lower. It's basically kind of like uh, Catholicism or something, I, I guess, in, in marriage, which is a sanctified union where people, two people come together and they say, we're going to you know, help one another, we're going to live together and for a higher purpose and, and so forth. So when the whole relationship is one of uh, being committed and self-sacrificing and so forth, that's a, a sanctified type of uh, relationship. That's the whole idea of, of marriage in, in religious culture. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, actually. I remember driving, going down the street on a rickshaw in, in Vrindavan once during the wedding season, and at that time, you can you can get held up in traffic sometimes. If there's a wedding, the Verma band is coming, doo, 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 playing these big drums and trumpets and all. And uh, and then the uh, the bridegroom. This is usually the procession. The bridegroom is on a on a horse, and he's got a turban. He's all decked out, and there's a palanquin over him, depending on how much money they have, you know, to spend on the wedding. And and families, I guess the bride's father pays for the wedding. And these people will save up their whole life for that. And how much they can spend on the wedding, how spectacular the event it can be, is, is, is uh, very much determines their social uh, standing and prestige and, and fulfillment in life. And so here we come driving down in a rickshaw, and the Verma band is coming through, and the whole, you know, they just take up the whole street. Everything stops, and everybody's noticing that basically this guy, it's being announced, is officially going to be with this lady... And we're letting everybody know, you know, that these two are going to be together and, you know, that's okay. That's blessed. We all, you know, think that's wonderful. It's kind of neat, actually, you know. So I think the brahmachari was with me was like frustrated. He said, oh, gosh, you know, wedding, you know, here we are, brahmachari, sannyasi, going for some preaching mission, held up by a wedding. I said, you don't think like this. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. We, we, we are for this, you know. This is a wonderful thing. Most people are going to be married. Let it be announced everywhere. They'll be married. Uh, everybody's, then it's hard for him to go somewhere else, you know, uh, or her to go somewhere else. And it serves to then make them committed to one another. When they're committed to one another, they have to sacrifice and they get purified. And their life has to ultimately, for them to remain together, to be about something more than just infatuation with one another. So sex life should be restricted to that type of um, relationship. I think then that will has potential for calling one spiritual progress if one thinks about all as we're talking about all the ramifications of that and so on. So but we've gone through all five, right? Okay. Yes, Carlos. Maharaj, yesterday, you know, we were talking about uh, performing kindness. I mean, can I just interrupt you for one second and say one other thing about this just coming to my mind? I think you have to understand that to the extent that we are not applying ourselves with regard to these principles, it will be difficult for us to make spiritual advancement. Think of it like that. In that way, it's not good. Rather than thinking of it of, in, a, in a kind of a way like, I'm bad, this is bad, and 
I'm getting a black mark. I used to think when I was a kid, we were Catholic. If we committed a venial sin, it'd be like a, a dot on our soul. I had this vision. It was this, this thing called a soul and gets a dot on it. If I get a mortal sin, it's like a big black hole. And, you know. And so that can, can in a way be counterproductive psychologically. It can make us just, because we may have shortcomings. And then if we have shortcomings and we look at them in a way that I'm bad and I'm evil and I make it discouraged from practicing and so forth, and that way it, it's counterproductive. If you rather look at it like, it's not going to help me spiritually, I got to get beyond this or improve on this to improve spiritually, then it may be easier to progress without potential for a kind of a guilt complex that's really counterproductive. You follow? Yeah. I'll get to you. Just in relation to that, one of the things that we've seen is that because the initial vow was taken and put forth as, like you said, a, such a thing that we did with a lifelong expectation, that that tension created tremendous amount of difficulty. Right. Because other, even in Catholicism, the priest goes, they offer their, they lay out and they say, this is it, I'm committed. And the initial vows, especially for new people, how do you reconcile that you're coming and here's the standard, and here's the vow you're going to take, and then they feel, I can't do this. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think you have to adjust it so they can do it. And that will be progressive. I mean, you know, it depends where you go. If you go to a planet of, um, a homosexual planet, let's say, you're going to have to talk about things differently, obviously, and set the rules in a different way. <laughs> you know, you can't just say, this is all wrong or something, you know. You all have to be married, guys, or, you know. <laughs> it's just, you know it's like... So, uh, wherever you are in the circumstance and time, you have to adjust these things in such a way that there is an ethical and moral foundation basis, and people understand it for that. And the further broader ramifications of it, identify with it in a healthy way and, and, and try to put it in place and make, make progress. I may sound pretty um, extremely liberal in, in the way I talk about these things sometimes, but there are precedences even in, from Prabhupada in this regard. And I know disciples of Prabhupada who had problems with certain principles and Prabhupada told them, anyway, then do this and get on with your service. So, knowing that, and just knowing how flexible Prabhupada was to be able to do what he did, then I take lessons to be flexible in the given times that we are uh, living for the sake of spreading Krishna consciousness, but in principle I don't disagree with him at all. I think, uh, hopefully I've made that clear. Yes? So you mentioned um, relative kindness and then you mentioned some sort of absolute kindness, mm. and then you mentioned uh, Vaishnava Seva, mm. which seemingly are different things. But my speculation is that that would depend on the mentality of the person rendering that service, wouldn't it? What would depend? I mean, for instance, if Prabhupada is walking the earth, and he sees someone and does something that would be seemingly giving a quarter to a guy who said he needed food, right? Somebody might construe that as um, relative kindness, relative uh, charitable, you know, kind of not so great. But if depending on what he was thinking, 
is how you decide how great it is, isn't it? Or is it even important to even distinguish? I'm not sure I fully understand what you're saying. I think that when Prabhupada would give rupee to a beggar, he was basically giving rupee to a beggar so that beggar could get something to eat. And he felt sorry that that beggar was hungry. There may be an added benefit to that because it was given by such a person whose life is, is so much motivated by, by love of Krishna. They may get some extra sukriti in that regard because it came from Prabhupada. But the fact of the matter is um, Prabhupada is, would be helping them on a relative level. Maybe he's also helping them on an absolute level, but he's, in his consideration, he's not thinking, I'll give this person a rupee, he'll go spend it on Krishna because it came from me, and then he's, he's going to get out of my or something. Prabhupada just look at him and say, this guy's hungry, and I've got money. And, you know, here, has, you know, what is, what's, what's a rupee to him? It's so much. So I think that... Um, I mean, that was a yeah. Um, well, I see what you're saying. I think that, um, like I said, that there's the shadow of compassion, and then there's compassion itself. Prophet said, real compassion is compassion for the soul, right? The plight of the soul. And so to relieve the soul from its plight is to educate the soul and engage the soul and in spiritual practices based on spiritual knowledge that they may be extricated from the material predicament. When you mention the different things that mm-hmm. we understand mm-hmm. in this sort of hierarchical way, it seems to become like you're speaking of an objective truth. But my sense of it would be that actually you're talking about a subjective truth where because Prabhupada was performing this supposed mundane activity, it wasn't really mundane, and that it's subjective to the mentality or consciousness of the person who does a certain behavior and not in some rigid, objective hierarchy. Yeah, I, I suppose you could look at it like that. I mean, ultimately, what is material and what's spiritual is um, determined by our motivation behind whatever we may do. I mean, that's obviously a big aspect of bhakti because we do things that would ordinarily be considered material. Just like in Gyan Marg, to be married is, you know, that means mundane. But in the bhakti Marg, it doesn't have to necessarily be that way. Or to be involved in printing books and building temples and driving cars and, and so forth. The uh, demarcation between matter and spirit becomes a little fuzzy ultimately material energy and spiritual energy are coming from the same source, they're one. So it's uh, the motivation behind the activity that determines whether it's spiritual or material as opposed to the activity itself. So in that sense, it's more subjective than objective. So regardless, you should do all three. You should chant Hare Krishna, you should show kindness to others and serve Vaishnavas. But if you don't have access to Vaishnavas, say, then perhaps the other is practically as good if you use the right mentality. The difference only is, I think, that the divination of also has something to give back. Whereas if you show kindness to an, to an ordinary person, which you should, you'll get something back. There's no doubt about that. But when in serving a Vaishnav, you'll get that back, that kind of thing back. But you, there's potential to get something more back because he has something more to offer. That's the difference. Yes? Did Prabhupada give a beggar? Sure. 
Pt's tell because me he would, he would get all these rupees when I go to temples to give them. I never heard that. I always yeah. heard there was giving in the mode of ignorance, giving right. in the mode well, of passion, that's and that to give to somebody like that was not. But that's not true. If a Vaishnav gives, that's an extraordinary event. There's extra benefit. Well, that's because in the temple, to, so that's I mean, why he's just going to go buy alcohol with yeah. it, so right. then it's really a bad thing. And we wouldn't even so give people the time of day. You decide, but Prabhupada gave to beggars. There's a story in Bhakti Siddhanta about his disciples. Do you know that story? Mm-hmm. About it's in, the, it's in his biography that we have. That uh, whose biography? Rupa Thalas. Okay. A biography of Saraswati Thakur. And he. Do you remember exactly what he said? Yeah. I remember reading. He said, don't think that Vaishnav means that you're above giving standard, everyday charity. That's a, a wrong mentality. Makes a hard-hearted person. Makes the heart hard if you don't give. If you don't give, it makes the heart right. hard. Yeah. Vaishnav is not above, he said? Not above these things. Mm-hmm. You should feel for these things. Right. You see, Bhaktivinoda Thakura has also explained in Tattva Sutra, and his last sutra, maybe Tattva Sutra, that the brotherly love, as he called it, is uh, inside of Vaishnavism, spiritual love. So who is a Vaishnav also has that human love. One is, again, the shadow of the other. So if he's inside of the Vaishnavism, he can also function in the realm of brotherly love. And in his giving, he's also giving more. Example, let's say Prabhupada is a great soul. So he gives a rupee to a beggar. And the beggar thinks, oh, thank you, you're very kind. I appreciate you. Pranam. Then theoretically, while he goes and spends that rupee for whatever, he's also thought favorably about someone who's moving in the world for such a high purpose that it will bring him sukriti for bhakti. So even by the Vaishnava, by doing good for others on a human level, relative, of course, to his stage of advancement, he or she is creating opportunity for Sukriti, for people to think favorably about bhakti. It doesn't mean that we should, oh, we want to get people involved in Krishna consciousness. Let's do this over here and then open a hospital and help people. When people see we're helping, they'll be attracted. So we'll bring them in and make them devotees and Sometimes devotees think like this, and they kind of like bifurcate these things. You know, over here we're doing—we don't really care about these people, or, you know. And it's really, you know, let's go march in the, you know, AIDS parade, because people will think they'll see us there, and they'll think, you know, we agree with, and then they'll think favorably about us, and then we'll get them to join us, and then we'll be able to tell them, you know, how bad their lifestyle is or whatever, you know. <laughs> So, you know, it's not like that, it's not like that, that when Prabhupada would be involved in those, those type of things to whatever extent he was. It was very, pretty much he was fully absorbed in what he was doing, spreading Krishna consciousness, but there was opportunity for overflow to help on some other levels. And when he did that, those people benefited more than merely by, for example, the rupee that he, that he gave them. The point is, it should be a whole person, a full, you have to be fully human. That's what Krishna is. Krishna is fully divine and fully human. It's hard to fathom, but that's the whole idea of Krishna. He's fully divine and fully human at the same time. So we have to become fully human and uh, and fully divine. (laughs) 
That's Krishna consciousness. So all that humanness, the human heart, it's not going to so go away. Here you say those words. Yes. The temple president here in Baltimore, he was giving a class one day, and somebody asked him, what does advance mean? And he said, to be sweet. Hmm. And I thought that was a pretty good That's nice. analogy. Mm-hmm. To be kind. Yeah. That's a big thing. You know, I'll tell you another thing. Along these lines, I, I met a fellow, Radharaman Goswami, He's older than me, but he was a young boy when he met Prabhupada. I guess I was too, but he's he's older than me, and and he he met Prabhupada in Vrindavan, and his name is Chaitanya Goswami, one of the Radharman Goswami families. And he told me how he had met Prabhupada, and he was fascinated by him, and and he wanted to ask him ask him a question to just kind of see where he was at, because Prabhupada was a little different saffron robes and all, and then the Godi tradition in Vrindavan is not so familiar with that kind of thing, and this mission had all these Western people and so forth. So he asked Prabhupada a question, he said, how to please Krishna? What is the best way to please Krishna? And Prabhupada said, oh, by pleasing Radharani. And he said, oh, then I knew, this is Godiya, he's Godiya. So, what a nice answer. And then, uh, and we were talking, and we were talking, and he said, about Prabhupada and his mission and so forth. And he said, actually, uh, Vivekananda was the first to go to America, I believe, the first to go and to preach in America. And then I drew back and I thought, wow, he's, he's equating Prabhupada with Vivekananda, and there's such a difference in ideology and what, what the two did and so forth. And, and so uh, I kind of, uh, kind of took exception, and, and, and I, I didn't voice it like that, but I, I said, but Vivekananda, I guess I did. I said, but Vivekananda, he, he was not a, not a Vaishnava. I, think, I was thinking, maybe he thinks this guy was a Vaishnava and he's blurred these two conceptions. It's not exactly accurate. So I said, well, yes, but he was not a Vaishnava. He says, no, 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 he's not a, not a Vaishnava. No, no. But he was a moral. Morally, he was perfect. Morally, he was perfect. And then I thought, wow, that's a big thing. Yeah, to be morally perfect. And this guy was a Radharman Goswami, and he, you know, he was saying, to be morally perfect it was a big thing. I'm not saying he wasn't, but a lot of things go on in Gaudi Vaishnavism that are less than morally perfect, while there's a lot of theory and, you know, harikata and so forth. It was, I thought, afterwards I reflected on it, I thought it was, it was, it was nice. It was a, that he could appreciate the, the moral standards of a Vivekananda. So, anyway, what else? We've talked for quite some time, huh? So, we'll stop there.